Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump firing back at the special counsel's request for a trial date in January. He's now proposing his own date that just happens to be three years away. Plus, the FBI involved in a new investigation. The grand jurors who indicted the former president in Georgia are now being threatened and also having their personal information exposed. And new warnings tonight in Hawaii for victims of the wildfires. Beware of scams as if they weren't already dealing with enough. This new warning after so many have lost everything already. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, Donald Trump's delay tactics seem to have gone into overdrive. His new ask for an extraordinary delay. They now want the judge to set a trial date for the special counsel's election interference case nearly three years from when he was indicted just a few weeks ago. They are looking for April 2026. That is nearly a year and a half after the 2024 election. It is obviously long past January 2024, which is when Jack Smith's team wants that trial to start. In papers that were filed just a few moments ago, Trump's legal team is arguing that the government wants to, in their view, deny the former president and his counsel a fair ability to prepare for that trial. Trump's team is saying that Smith's proposed timeline would conflict with the other civil and criminal cases that he is also fighting. And while they do note that his obligation to prepare for this case is not nullified because of the other legal issues that he is facing, They say that the court, they believe, should consider the effects that those other prosecutions is inevitably going to have on this one. They're also noting that there is a mountain of evidence for them to sort through, totaling 11.5 million pages. Trump, of course, does have a mountain of indictments piling up. That is something that is apparently bewildering even to him. Look, I mean, this is not even possible for over the next last couple of months. If you talk about an election, they want to put you in jail. Also tonight, Donald Trump has just officially called off that news conference where he was going to really finally provide the proof, he says, that the 2020 election was stolen. I've been hearing from sources all day that that news conference he had announced after he was indicted in Georgia earlier this week was really in serious doubt because Trump's attorneys had warned him that talking about baseless claims of election fraud could hurt his case in upcoming trials where he's being accused of trying to overturn the election. Trump just confirmed in a post on his social media site, but he is saying that his attorneys would prefer to put it in formal legal filings to fight that latest indictment in Georgia. So therefore, that news conference won't be necessary. I'm joined tonight by former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, obviously April 2026 is a date that, you know, kind of surprised everyone, I think. They knew that they were going to push for a delay. How do you think the judge is going to respond to that? Well, Caitlin, when I first saw this date, 2026, honestly, I thought it was a typo. I said, they can't really mean 2026. I don't think the judge is going to take this seriously at all. I think the judge is going to see it as a wild overreach. That said, Donald Trump does, in his brief, make a compelling argument that DOJ's request that we start four months from now in January is also wildly unrealistic. As you said, Trump points out there's 11 million documents here. He almost physically can't go through that in enough time. He also makes an interesting point that the average federal conspiracy case, run-of-the-mill, takes about two years to get to trial. And in fact, some of the people who stormed the Capitol, fairly straightforward cases, were given two or so years up until trial. So he argues that I'm being rushed, and I think the judge is going to have to find some workable middle ground here. Yeah, Jack Smith has pushed for a very ambitious date of January 2024, and Trump is asking for one April 2026. I mean, 
But do they have a point when, when they're talking about the evidence here? Because they're saying that that date is too soon. And one of the arguments is about all of the discovery evidence and that they say, as they break it down, they would need to read, I believe it's 99,762 pages of documents a day in order to finish with the prosecution's proposed date for jury selection, which is in mid-December. And basically that's say it's like reading War and Peace 78 times per day until then. Yeah, there's a good colorful example. But look, this is a fair point. On the one hand, there's a tension here. On the one hand, there's a need to try Donald Trump quickly. I think there's a public interest in that. On the other hand, we can't forget he does have a Sixth Amendment right to fully prepare his defense. And he doesn't have to just read those nearly 100,000 documents per day. He has to analyze them. He has the right to investigate and mount his own defense. He has the right to bring motions. I don't see any earthly way he can get that done by Jack Smith's proposed date of January 2024. I also don't see why we need to push this out until three years from now. Ali Honig, we'll see what the judge decides, of course, maybe somewhere in the middle. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. All right. All right. Also tonight, one of the biggest mysteries that was embedded in that Georgia indictment we saw earlier this week against not just Donald Trump, but also 18 others was who are the other unnamed members of what prosecutors are calling, quote, the enterprise. In the words of the indictment, we are talking about unindicted co-conspirators, one through individual 30. We can now say for sure who many of those people are and how they connect to the former president. This comes as the time that, at the same time that we are learning a special prosecutor is going to be named to investigate one of those unindicted co-conspirators because a judge initially said they were off limits to the district attorney. The list of co-conspirators reaches to the inner depths of Donald Trump's team. Boris Epstein is a key Trump advisor to this day. He is also, based on our reporting, co-conspirator number two. He was so close to Trump that you'll recall he was sitting just a few seats away from the former president when he was arraigned here in Manhattan. If you dig through this list, it really runs the gambit from Bernie Carrick, who was the former New York Police Department commissioner, Rudy Giuliani's lead investigator, a former surfer from Hawaii, even to the CEO of Cyber Ninjas, that group behind a sham audit of ballots in the state of Arizona. There are a number of Republican officials on this list as well. The highest ranking one that you can see here is current Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Burt Jones. That is who a judge ruled that Fonnie Willis couldn't indict because she had held a fundraiser for his political opponent. I'm joined now by two people who know the situation in Georgia well, U.S. Attorney Michael Moore and Jeff Duncan, the former lieutenant governor before Burt Jones, and also, we should note, a key witness in this case. I mean, what do you make when you, you look at that board? I mean, this is your home state. You, you know a lot of those faces. It's not surprising, really, at all. And I think, you know, they're using this idea of unindicted co-conspirators to tell a story and put some context on it. But it also lets a prosecutor reach a little deeper into the the whole of the enterprise and and uh, and pull the noose a little bit tighter around the group. And, and it's a valuable tool. Um, it, it also helps keep cooperators and witnesses in line because they can recognize that if they do try to do something against the story, uh, against what they've told maybe under oath at some point, that they could end up on the opposite side of the versus mark with Trump. So um, that's uh, it's, it's a good tool, but I'm, I'm not surprised to see these folks in it. Yeah. I mean, so you think it could be potentially used to help flip other people? I mean, we'll, sure. see, we'll see what that looks like for these 30 people. Burt Jones, I mean, he's the current lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. The only reason he couldn't be indicted here, I mean, we don't know for sure that he would have, but the only reason he couldn't be is because Bonnie Willis held a, a fundraiser for his opponent. I mean, what do you make of the fact that he's unindicted co-conspirator number eight? 
So not, not very shocking. Uh, you know, it was a kind of a technicality, and his team filed the, the, their, their grievance to, to get him off the initial list. But, you know, he had a front row seat for this, right? He was a state senator at the time, and I was the lieutenant governor. And it really was kind of an odd motion for him. You know, he kind of built this little coalition of a handful of senators. And sure enough, they were the mouthpiece for Donald Trump inside the Senate. And they were really the, you know, the, the ringleaders of trying to set up the meetings uh, at the Capitol and, and whatnot. And it certainly ended up being a, a, a fake elector. Um, you know, it was just interesting. I mean, these guys just got infatuated, in my opinion, to be in the cool kids club, right? It just was this draw of attention. They had President Trump's eye, and that was enough for them to just listen to whatever they said and, and did. And he was one of those who wanted you to call a special session of the legislature. Yeah, no, there was a, a big effort for a special session. There was a big effort, uh, you know, for uh, meetings and official, you know, capacities. Um, it was easy to spot, but uh, painful to watch them have to go through this process. I'm sure it's going to be an expensive one. Yeah, it's not just Burt Jones, though. I mean, this, there are other top Republicans from Georgia ensnared in this. I mean, Sean still is a sitting state senator. He's my, and, he's my senator that represents mm-hmm. our house. Well, how do you feel about that? I mean, so, well, look, just to, he's one of the people charged here. And now Brian Kemp's office, the governor, has confirmed that they did get that. And the question is whether or not he is going to be suspended because of this. Yeah, I mean, it draws into question. I mean, look, there's, and I think he's got a whole stack of charges against him. And, you know, I believe he was associated with the state party. A few years ago, this list of folks that were co-conspirators and, and indicted would have been a who's who of Republicans in Georgia. Uh, and now, you know, to think about, there's 19 individuals and there's 30 co-conspirators, 48 people other than Donald Trump are all going to be infighting and trying to fight for their own freedom. Uh, I can't imagine they're going to have any sort of... Uh, you know, respect for Donald Trump or are worried about his uh, his future. I mean, what are Republicans in Georgia saying about that? You know, um, I think there are some that are trying to distance themselves and you've got some that are circling the wagons at the same time. And Jeff, you may feel different about that, but it's, it strikes me that you have people who, who are remaining close to, uh, to the Trump team and to the campaign. And then you've got others who may be running for a little bit of cover. What do you make of the fact that, I mean, we're just talking about how Trump is saying he's canceling this major news conference that you know, for those of us who have covered Trump for a long time, we never really had any faith that this was going to be a real news conference. I mean, it shocked half the people who work for him, basically. But it has caused him saying that it was going to be this irrefutable proof of election fraud in Georgia. Brian Kemp came out and said that that's not the case. Brad Raffensperger, Mike Pence is coming out and saying it. I mean, we're almost three years past the 2020 election. There's probably a more technical term for this, but the dumpster fire has started again, right? To watch all this gyration going on, all this... Uh, you know, nonsense. Um, and, and I do think, back to your point, I think Georgians are, Georgia Republicans are ahead of the game. Um, we've seen this play out in 3D. Uh, we watched Brian Kemp go through it, and, and of course he beat the brakes off David Perdue by 52 points, came back and, and beat Stacey Abrams. Um, but certainly not everybody's healed from the Trump mm-hmm. virus. But uh, I think nationally speaking, we're, we're, there, there's something happening this week that just feels different than the other cases. There's some sort of motion that, that really... The seriousness of this, the weight of this. I mean, every day that ends in Y, for the next two years, Donald Trump's going to have something to do in a courtroom. And whether or not he's going to be flying around, whether or not he's going to be campaigning, whether or not he's going to be using you know, all kinds of misinformation, who knows? But that, he's not going to win this election campaigning from a courthouse. And it just feels like Republicans are starting to wake up to that. I, I do think that you know, this idea of relitigating is going to be a problem for the lawyers. But at the same time, it, there, there's some merit to the, to the thought that you do raise doubts during your case if you're if you're defending Trump uh, about the election, and that's because this entire indictment is about somebody trying to basically commit election fraud or get somebody else to commit election fraud if they knew that they had in fact lost. And so he just needs to get one juror 
to bite off, that maybe, maybe there was something real here. Maybe there was something he should look at. Doesn't mean that they've got to buy into the whole thing. So I think you're going to hear about this as part of a natural defense. I mean, otherwise, what, what's his defense going to be? I mean, it, 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 he can argue that he was the president. He can argue presidential immunity. He can argue all these things. But at some point, they're going to have to come in and put this kind of argument out there to say, I, I wasn't totally off base. There may have been something else. Well, I mean, it, they'll, they'll, they'll just point to something that somebody said. Remember, it's not illegal for him to listen to his lawyers. It's not illegal for him to have a strategy session uh, with Rudy Giuliani saying, or, or Sidney Powell. Or, you know, we go, we go down the list of people. That, being creative and sort of talking about things is not illegal. Now, this may have gone far to the uh, field, right? I mean, kind of, yeah, to the, to, the, to the crazy side. But, but he's got to be able to come in and say, I was listening to people who had information. I was listening to people who had talked about the voting machines. I was listening to people who told me what was happening in some of the rural counties in Georgia with the votes. And so you're going to hear this relitigation is part of his defense. And I mean, that, that, that's just the reality. I, I think it's in- interesting to watch this divide. Some of these uh, in- indicted are talking about uh, that they believe it was still rigged. And some are saying, well, I just I was listening to advice. And, and the other part is uh, that, that, you know, no, all everyone doesn't disagree that they did this stuff. It's on Twitter. It's on the news. It's on video. They're just saying it wasn't illegal. That's right. It, 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 because they, they thought they were moving forward or something. That's, that, right. that's right. We'll see what the jury decides. Right. And if and when that happens, it could be a long time from now. Thank you both for being here. Our two resident Georgians, Michael Moore, Jeff Duncan. Up next, the FBI has now gotten involved in the state of Georgia after the grand jurors who voted to indict Donald Trump there earlier this week are now facing threats of violence. The people threatening them know their names and where to find them. Plus, the private debate strategy for Ron DeSantis from some of his top supporters has gone public, and we've got the fallout and quotes from it. Tonight, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office in Georgia says that federal investigators are now helping track down the origin of threats that have been made to the grand jury that voted to indict former President Donald Trump and 18 others this week. Personal information of those members of that jury has been posted online. It has sparked serious safety concerns for these everyday Americans who were just simply doing their civic duty. Officials are now also tracking threats against officials in Fulton County. They are also increasing security for the district attorney there, Fonnie Willis. Joining me now tonight is Robert Pape. He is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He studies and tracks these threats to democracy, and that is why, Robert, you are the perfect person to have on this. I mean, as we noted, these jurors were just simply doing their civic duty. Anyone could have been called to be on this jury, and now you're seeing anonymous people on these mainly far-right websites, calling for violence against them. I mean, in 2023, is this just the price you pay for playing your part in democracy? Well, I'm afraid it's the price we're going to have to get used to. Uh, This is something we must take extremely seriously, Caitlin, for two reasons. First, our surveys at the University of Chicago for two years have been tracking support for political violence in the American public. And what we're seeing is with the indictments, what we're seeing is a surge of violent support for Donald Trump up 50%. Today, there are 18 million people who agree that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. There's a second reason, though, to be concerned. There have been multiple attacks 
and multiple armed threats against the, call them enemies of Trump, just over the last year. Literally a year ago this month, there was an assailant who attacked the FBI office in Cincinnati out of retaliation for the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. And just before he died in the shootout, he posted on Truth Social that he wanted everybody to know that he's doing this for Trump. The Pelosi attacker last, uh, last October, your audience knows about that. Mm -hmm. Just six weeks ago, though, there was an assailant who came to Obama's house in Washington, D.C., armed, uh, and fortunately, that threat was diffused. And of course, last week, there was another assailant uh, who was making violent threats to President Biden, threats he had been making in March. The police came, they talked to him, told him to stop it. He started again the day uh, Biden was coming to Utah, and he brandished a gun And rather than uh, stop making those threats. We need to see that the combination of the rising sentiments, violent sentiments for Trump that these indictments are triggering and the existing pattern we already have of lethal violence against the enemies of Trump, this really means we must take the threats to the jurors very seriously in Georgia and be prepared that this won't be over for the jurors, yeah, certainly I mean, not even when the trials are over. And clearly in Georgia, I mean, the FBI has been brought in you referenced that. There was also the woman in Texas who was arrested and charged yesterday because she had threatened to kill a judge overseeing one of Trump's cases. Some people will listen to this and say, well, what about the man, the man who showed up at Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home? But I do also, you know, you referenced Trump supporters and those who are driven and say that, you know, the violence justifies the mean. This is something Trump said today about the charges against him. They want to silence you. They want to silence you. And they mean silence. They are, uh, I think they're sick people. I think they are people that uh, have no idea how the world works and they have no idea the anger they cause. What impact do comments like that have on his supporters? Uh, this is inflammatory rhetoric, and this is exactly the kind of rhetoric that those attackers, the four I just mentioned, um, were steeped in before their attacks. But just important to know, Caitlin, that if violent rhetoric can encourage political violence, it can, uh, calming rhetoric can also discourage it. And we have an important opportunity next week for political leaders to set an example. On August 23rd, next Wednesday, the Republican primary debate is going to be covered nationally. Every person on that stage should be asked to stand up and stand together against violent threats, whether they come from the right or the left, and specifically the threats we're now seeing surging against the jurors in Georgia. And if they won't make that pledge to stand up to political violence, if it really is okay for uh, Trump supporters to essentially threaten uh, to assassinate those jurors, they should be called into account. Why is that okay? We'll see if they are indeed asked that and what they have to say about it. Obviously, it's not an issue that's going away. Robert Pape, thank you for joining us with your expertise tonight. Thank you. And with that, let's focus on the law enforcement aspect of this. These are threats that we have seen. Danelle Harvin is here. Luckily, he is the former Washington, D.C. Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence. I mean, when you look at this, the fact that what we've learned to today, tonight, Danelle, the Fulton County Sheriff investigating these threats against the grand jurors, I mean, 
How does law enforcement determine how serious those threats are? When what Robert was talking about there, they go from just being statements to something that people may actually take action on. Well, Professor Pape was spot on. And what we're seeing right now is a normalization of violence uh, in the political space. I'll tell you that uh, the use of violence and furtherance of a political goal or ideology is at the heart of the definition of domestic terrorism. And when you have nobody, be it Trump or be it any elected officials, pulling these individuals back from the brink of extremism and, and violence, that's when you're going to have, I think, uh, the, 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 the long-term effects of what the radicalization uh, and the inflammatory language. There's no one out there condemning this. Uh, there was no one out there on the Republican side or any political uh, officials on the right uh, saying that that individual who drove up from North Carolina looking for Obama after President Trump put out pres former President Obama's address uh, was wrong. And so law enforcement have to weigh all these threats uh, and they have to do so very carefully because there's a First Amendment. The First Amendment allows people to be radicalized. I hate to say this. Radicalization is not illegal in our country. Um, but making threats of violence is. And so there are limits to the First Amendment. There's gonna be a lot of things you'll see on, on these websites. Some of these things are a lot difficult, more difficult than others for law enforcement and intelligence operatives to look on. Some of these encrypted chat rooms uh, and, and, and yeah. you know, the deep web stuff. So you know they have to really uh, triage all these threats and hope they, they find the real true bad actors. Well, they're triaging them. I mean, I think one question that people have had today is how these names even ended up online. And, you know, what's not well known is that Georgia is unusual and that they, in the name of transparency is the goal of this. They require these names to be made public. I mean, what concerns do you have about the safety of those grand jurors tonight? Well, I, I was actually surprised to learn that. I think that officials should have had some forethought about that. Uh, those jurors' names were in the beginning of the of the indictment. Um, and so it really has a chilling effect on others who may be looking to serve or asked to serve on the actual jury um, or subsequent grand juries. Uh, you know, serving on a jury or grand jury is really at the heart, at the core of our democratic and, and of our civil process. And so if individuals are scared to do that, I think once again, uh, because of the threats of violence, they may be less inclined to do so. And that and that really puts a, a, a kink in the wheels of justice, just to be able to serve on a grand jury and not have threats against you. I think people expect that. Yeah. Um, once again, you know, you have to look at all of these threats and triage them. That's gonna take a lot of resources and a lot of time for law enforcement. And you have to call in the federal authorities because they have some of the, some of the uh, analytical heft to do that. We'll see what they look like as the FBI is now investigating this. Danelle Harvin, thank you. And coming up, thank the you. Biden campaign is planning to counter-program the Republican debate next week that Robert mentioned there. But Democrats have their own issues that they are focused on. We'll talk to us this. To, we'll talk about the strategy of that with one of the president's 2024 campaign co-chairs. That's next. Twenty twenty four candidates in the Republican Party aren't the only ones preparing for next Wednesday's debate. We are told that President Biden's campaign is also planning an aggressive media blitz to counter whatever happens on the stage that night. They do have their work cut out for them, though. The president's average approval rating right now is hovering somewhere around 40 percent. He has been struggling to sell his Bidenomics message to voters who say that they are still dissatisfied with the current state 
of the economy. So joining me now on this is Biden's 2024 campaign co-chair, former White House senior advisor, Cedric Richmond. Cedric, thank you for being here. I mean, the president has been out on the road, you know, trying to sell what the White House is calling Bidenomics and this idea of a strong economy. But why do you think that that hasn't impressed voters yet? Well, I think it's how you ask the question. If you look at the latest Pew research, you see that 79% of the people in this country are either satisfied or very satisfied with the job that they have. And then you put that on top of the fact that the president's created 13 million jobs since coming in uh, to office. And you look at uh, GDP and all of those things. Uh, it's, it's a very good positive. So it's, to me, it's how you ask the question. The other thing that I would uh, point you to is the fact that Bidenomics is really a value proposition. It's the fact that this president believes that we're going to make this country and continue to grow this country by building from the bottom up and the middle out. Yeah, and there are job numbers that are good, but I mean, mortgage rates are not great. Gas prices are going back up today. I mean, right now it's 36% of Americans believe that they like the way that he's handled the economy. Do you think that's something he can change in the next year? I mean, that's going to be a big part of his campaign push. I do, and part of it is by going out and talking about the accomplishments we've had, the challenges that the president has been able uh, to face. And remember, uh, the president united uh, the entire West against Russian aggression. That came with a cost. That came with inflation uh, impact. And so we're gonna, he's going to continue to do the job of working on behalf of the American people. And I think he has to continue to go out and talk about the investments in infrastructure, which no other president was able to do. The fact that he was able to cap insulin for our seniors at $35. So I think he's doing the absolute right thing. And that is to go to the American people and talk about the accomplishments and talk about the things that we still have to do. You know the former president well. I mean, obviously, you're working on his campaign now. You were at the White House when I was there covering the White House. When you look at these polls that show, you know, what it looks like we're headed for, which is potentially a 2020 rematch. We don't know for sure yet, but that's what it looks like right now. And it says in that hypothetical rematch, I mean, Biden is virtually tied with Trump, who is we were just talking about with our previous guest, has, has now been indicted four times. I mean, how do you explain why they are virtually tied? I don't explain it. All I will say is that people continue to count President Biden and Vice President Harris out. And over and over again, President Biden shows that he has the stamina, he has the wherewithal, he has the courage to fight through. And so we look forward to a uh, Biden-Harris-Trump rematch. And I think that the American people are going to choose Biden's record of delivering over the chaos, the bullying and all of the things during uh, the Trump years. One thing that, you know, we know is inevitably going to be brought up, it's brought up, you know, pretty regularly by 2024 Republicans, is his son, is Hunter Biden. You know, his legal troubles are far from over. We talked about those in detail with Hunter Biden's attorney here on the show last week. But when you look at it from a campaign perspective and a political perspective, and you work for the campaign, have you all discussed how to handle that on the campaign trail, how to rebut those attacks or what you're going to say when they inevitably are brought up? We stand by uh, the president and the first lady. They love their son Hunter dearly. Uh, They support him and his challenges that he's faced, he's man up to. And we won't comment on ongoing investigations. But this campaign is not about President Biden's family. This campaign is about the families that are watching us on TV right now, trying to keep a roof over their head, food on the table, clothes on their back. 
And that's why Bidenomics and build, rebuilding the middle class is so important. And we're never going to make this campaign. And the president has never made the campaign about him. He's always made it about the people. And I think that that's what separates him from President Trump. President Trump is all about himself. Uh, President Biden is about delivering for people and trying to improve uh, their lives, which is why you don't uh, see him focusing on taking away freedoms like Republicans and what you're going to hear in Milwaukee. He's about building up uh, Americans. And I, I think that that is the uh, biggest contrast. I understand that that's what he what he wants to focus on. That is obviously a top issue for a lot of Americans. But this is something Republicans are inevitably going to, to bring up. I mean, so what do what's the White House's plan? What's the, the campaign's plan to respond to those attacks when you know some voters say, well, Hunter Biden's being treated this way by the justice system? President Trump is being treated this way by the justice system. I mean, do you have a plan to rebut that or do you think the plan is to to kind of ignore those attacks? Well, we won't ignore anything. I think what we will point out, though, is that President Biden on a campaign trail said that he wanted to restore the independence of the Justice Department. And since he's been president, he's done just that. And in fact, he left the prosecutor there that was investigating Hunter Biden, because that was, in his mind, the right thing to do to restore the independence of the Justice Department. So that's all we'll say there. And then we'll remind people that while Republicans are talking about Hunter Biden, we're talking about the fact that your grandmother and mother will not have to pay more than $35 every month for insulin. You won't choose between medicine and rent. You won't choose between your house note and medicine. So they can focus wherever they want, but we're going to focus on the American people. Cedric Richmond, thank you for your time tonight. We'll see what happens in Milwaukee next week, and we'll see what your response is. Thank you for having me. Speaking of that debate, there is a memo from a DeSantis super PAC that may reveal his debate strategy, which is to defend Donald Trump and attack other candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie. Was the leak part of a grand plan? What does it mean, and will we see it on the debate stage next week? Tonight, there is confusion and some anger we are hearing among Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign team after an embarrassing memo was posted online with tips for the Florida governor ahead of next week's first Republican debate. On one of the memos, which we should note were first reported by The New York Times, it suggests four basic must-dos for him next Wednesday. One, attack Joe Biden in the media three to five times. Two, state positive vision two to three times. Three, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. Four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. Joining me now to discuss is Paul Wagala and Jason Osborne. Jason, I mean, you're familiar with debate prep. Is he going to be able to still use these very specific attacks in here, including, you know, the one on Chris Christie saying, you know, Trump isn't here. Just leave him alone. He's too weak to defend himself. But I don't think we want to join forces with someone on this stage who's auditioning for a show on MSNBC. That's what they are telling him to say to Chris Christie. I mean, can he, can he still use that next week? Well, I mean, the sad reality, no on that point. But I mean, the sad thing is, at least from what I've read, is virtually everything in the memo is stuff that everybody in the country that's a political person would suggest DeSantis do, right? I mean, highlighting your policies, two to three policies, that's basic debate prep 101. I, you know, I think DeSantis now is uh, having to th- configure the fact that his super PAC is amateurish 
and they're making rookie mistakes in a time where you can't make these kind of mistakes. I mean, hide the stuff on some place that nobody else can find, but certainly don't put together 700 pages of a memo and expect five days before a debate that the candidate's going to have a chance to digest it. It's it's amateurish and it's unfortunate, quite frankly. And Paul, I mean, when you looked at the documents, there was not one focused on attacking Donald Trump. Instead, it had what he should do when Chris Christie attacks Donald Trump. I mean, Trump is basically making clear online tonight that he is not going to show up to that debate. He's posting on Truth Social about it. But what do you make of the tactic that he DeSantis is being encouraged to take when it comes to Trump? Yeah, if you're going to first off, Jason, right, leaking this is 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 it's like the dumbest thing I've seen in a long time. I see a lot of dumb things. Um, if Mr. Governor DeSantis uh, wants to defend Donald Trump, well, that is Donald Trump's job. He has plenty of defenders. I think he's put himself, his people have put him in a terrible, terrible box because now everything he says in the debate, we're all going to say, oh, that was scripted. That was false. Uh, Governor Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy, who were mentioned in that memo, they need to send uh, the DeSantis Super PAC a fruit basket or something to thank them because anything now DeSantis says, they'll say that was canned, that was fake. You know, there's this great line, Groucho Marx used to say that uh, the secret of life is authenticity. And once you can fake that, everything else is easy. Well, that's what they're telling him. There's a fake like you're a normal person. He's a Ronbot 2.023. Um, uh, artificial intelligence has made great progress, but he's just artificial and not very intelligent. Yeah. And I should note, Jason, the DeSantis campaign has put out a statement from his spokesperson, Andrew Romeo, tonight saying, this is not from them. This wasn't sanctioned by them. It's his outside political group. But I mean, part of the memo refers to what's known as, you know, what Roger Ailes deemed this orchestra pit moment, saying basically someone who falls or does something, you know, kind of embarrassing or show stopping is something that is going to be more remembered than someone who articulates this comprehensive foreign policy vision. I mean, is that what they're worried right. about happening on Wednesday night? Well, I think as Paul can remember the Orson Swindle, you know, who am I and what am I doing here moment. But I don't think we're going to see something like that. Right. I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, DeSantis is the only one that has high expectations. Everybody else, there's no expectations that any of them are going to have to meet. And unfortunately, DeSantis is going to have to meet those expectations and probably exceed them. And I know to your point that you just mentioned about what Andrew had said. Yeah, the campaign is upset. This is a distraction that they did not need. And at some point, the other six candidates that are up on that stage uh, or the six candidates that are going to be up on that stage need to say why they're running for president instead of sitting there and defending Trump or not attacking Trump. Because otherwise, then it's just six people up there talking about Trump and yeah. how much Trump did and how great he was. Uh, and now he's got to come up with a new nickname for Vivek Ramaswamy. You can't say Vivek the faker. Everyone will know it's from this. Paul Begala, Jason right. Osborne, we've got to leave it there. Thank you both. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks. We also have major news tonight coming here in this hour. A major resignation has just happened in Maui. It is the official who decided not to sound the sirens as those flames were taking over Lahaina. They are now stepping down. They say it is for health reasons. We have more details right after this. There's breaking news tonight out of Hawaii, where a Maui's Emergency Management Agency administrator has just submitted his resignation, effective immediately, we are told. Herman Andaya is citing health reasons, but you may recognize him. 24 hours ago, it was Andaya who was defending his decision not to sound those warning sirens as the wildfire was sweeping 
the town of Lahaina. It killed at least 111 people so far, with more than 1,000 still missing tonight. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. Had we sounded the siren that night, we are afraid that people would have gone Malka. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. The mayor of Maui says that he is going to be appointing someone else in that role as quickly as possible, given how crucial it is at this time. Meanwhile, as Hawaiians are dealing with the unimaginable loss of what they are dealing with on the ground tonight, the FBI is now warning to be on high alert against criminals who are exploiting these disaster victims with scams. Joining me tonight is Maui resident Ella sable Takdaren. Ella, thank you for being here. I wonder just first off, I know that what you have been through the last few days has just been hell, but now hearing that the Maui emergency administrator is stepping down, his defense of not sounding those sirens, what do you make of that? Um, I, I don't have words, but I know that um, it should have been sounded because it could have saved lives when um, everyone's aware that there was fire going on at that time. However, um, I do feel like it, it, I do feel like um, the mayor should have a big um, decision to make in regards to sounding the, the alarms as well, the sirens as well. And um, it feels like, you know, a lot of people's hands were tied. They didn't know what to do at this situation. And I, I, I'm not, I don't know what to say. I just feel like that siren should have been sounded because according to MauiSirens.com, part of that is wildfires. And of course, everyone's going to know that there's an emergency happening if that siren was sounded. And Ella, I know, I mean, so, you've been affected by this firsthand. I mean, right now it looks quiet in your house, but you have 23 family members staying with you. That means there's 32 total people in your house right now. Can you just, I mean, what is your day-to-day even like at the moment? Right now, it still feels like, um, it still feels surreal that um, I can't imagine that this has happened. Uh, My house is full and, you know, and my heart is full. All the, the community is coming together, helping each other out. And I'm just happy that um, we have each other. We're safe, un- unharmed, and reunited. Um, one of my cousins, after a whole week, finally see her in person. Um, and she was stuck in Kanapali, and today she we finally reunited with her. Uh, that um, We've been getting a lot of help from the community, and the community has been a big part of my, my family's survival. Um, without them, uh, we we wouldn't be we, where we are right now in regards to sanity um, as well as um, our, our survival mode. You mentioned the community, but are you getting enough help from the government tonight? My parents received a check for $700, which was a slap in the face. The $700 was given by the government. Um, and I feel like it's not enough. Living in Hawaii, you spend groceries, you you know, everything is so expensive. Groceries can be as much as $700 just for one grocery run. And it's not enough. And right now the Maui community is helping the Maui community. And I'm, I'm really, I'm, it's really affected me because where's the president? He decides to come here this week to come here next week 
I mean, like, we're, we're, aren't we Americans too? Like, we're part of the United States, but why are we not, why are we getting put in the back pocket? Why are we being ignored? And I feel like these families need aid right away. And they're being turned away because their applications hasn't been approved or pending. And like, and the only way they'll be able to get aid or help is if they sign up through FEMA, where a lot of these, a lot of these families have elderly who are computer literate, where they don't know how to do it, or they don't know what to do. What do you think right is now, important for the, the only president? Help we're getting is, Ella, what do you think it's important for the president to see when he, when he comes next week on Monday? Tell him to come to War Memorial and see the people there laying out in cots and see how he feels, especially injured people that's laying out in cots right at War Memorial Stadium. I'm Ella. so sorry. I, I didn't know that it was going to go this way. I, I was happy to talk about my family, but everything that has been in my heart, I needed to say out loud because I've been struggling mentally when it comes to providing help. And I want to be able to be there for every single person that I meet. I want to be there for every single person that I see. Ella, I mean, no one can even fathom what you and your family have been through. So you don't have to apologize. And Thank you for coming on tonight. I know you have a lot of people in your household and uh, we know the president will be there next week. So thank you very much. Thank you. And Abby Phillip picks up our coverage right after this break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.